Welcome to another episode of the Deacon's Roundtable. I'm joined here with Deacon Dave Egan, who is formerly of Victory Lakes, Deacon Mike Alandi from St. Mary the Annunciation, our Vicar of Deacons from Archdiocese of Chicago, Richard Hudzik, and I'm Greg Webster from St. Rayfield the Archangel in Old Mill Creek, Illinois. We are here today talking a little bit about Catholic Relief Services with our guests, which we'll get to in a little bit, after Deacon Mike gives us an opening prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. As we wait for the Holy Spirit to uh, shed His wisdom and light upon all of us, we pray that uh, for our speaker today and our uh, discussions, may the Lord provide us wisdom. And may this be a source of uh, joy and uh, rejoicing for all those who are listening to us. And we pray together, glory be to the Father, and, and to, to the, the Son, and, and to the Holy Spirit. Spirit. As, as it, it was, was in the beginning, beginning is, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Deacon Richard, would you like to introduce our, introduce our guest today? Do I have to? No, you don't, no, but okay, you're getting but paid I, to. But I will, I will. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm getting paid? Yes. No, really? Wow. Uh, yes, it's, uh, it's with uh, great pleasure that we bring on board for this afternoon's show, this evening's show, today's show, this show, uh, Deacon Michael Facchetti. Uh, that's F-E-K-E-T-E, -E -E, uh, previously hailed from Pittsburgh, now that he's a Chicago boy, he's an archdiocese of Chicago, deacon ordained in 2016, proudly serving the parish of St. Gerald's in one of the Oaks, Oak Lawn? Oak Lawn. Oak Lawn. And uh, that, is, uh, that is Mike, and he is uh, blessed with a wonderful wife. Um, I've met them both, and uh, they're still speaking to me, so... <laughs> So far, so good. Did he marry up like the rest of us? Mary, of course. He, yeah, he did. Good. Yeah, he good. did. <laughs> Deacon <laughs> Mike, welcome here up to Thank you. the Great North here in in, in uh, Libertyville, Illinois. Can you tell us a little bit about becoming a deacon, where the call came from, how how it progressed, uh, why you should cheer for the Bears instead of the Steelers, wherever the spirit <laughs> takes you? Well, I, I grew up a, a cradle Catholic. Uh, you know, b both of my uh, parents afforded me a... a Catholic education uh, primary uh, was at St. Raphael's in Morningside in Pittsburgh and then I went to uh, high school at a Christian brother, uh, the French Christian Brothers High School, uh, their uh, Pittsburgh Central Catholic. So that was uh, very formative uh, for me and coincidentally or not, I now work at uh, Lewis University in Romeoville which is run by the same uh, St. John Baptist Cell uh, Christian Brothers. Uh, my my grandfather actually was was very influential along with with my father in terms of uh, living my faith uh, in an in an active way. Um, although I'm a, a third generation American, when my grandfather came over, um, he spent a lot of time doing what I would refer to now after some theological reflection and uh, theological training and studies and formation for the diaconate, uh, doing s the social mission of the church. Uh, working with Hungarian as well as Slovak immigrants that were coming into the city that needed um, basic English language uh, lessons to help uh, financially kind of getting off their feet. We'll never know how and in what ways the, the expanse was of his assistance to, to those in, in the community. So my first liturgies were actually in Hungarian uh, as an altar server. So I learned very quickly the ritual uh, and the traditions of our faith through that way, not not uh, speaking the language uh, fluently at that at that point in my life. 
but I, I would say that the the Christian brothers at my uh, high school, uh, Central Catholic, were were very formative in helping me understand how to live and activate my faith in my life and to take my faith into the world and into the relationships that uh, I would uh, engage in in different ways. And so I did a lot of work in nonprofit uh, nonprofits in the city uh, through United Cerebral Palsy. I worked for the School for the uh, Blind Institute uh, there and for a respite care program helping parents that just needed a break uh, from the full-time care of their children. Uh, and so I, I saw different ways of working with people that were often forgotten, that were often not looked at as being a part of society in the, in the full way that our, our secular society sometimes looks, often looks at people actually. And so I, I think very early on I was sensitized to those have been uh, underrepresented, uh, those that sometimes don't have a voice, literally and figuratively. And so uh, I think many years later that I can kind of connect some dots to those, those experiences in my life. And so um, how's did that? Someone, did someone approach you on becoming a deacon, or did you, did you just find the spirit yourself and you call up Puhala? How did it work? Oh, wow. Um, well, I, th I think there, there were obviously some connections, and I think the Holy Spirit was, was working in a very unique and positive way. Uh, you know, my wife has been a, a big part of that. Uh, she's been very uh, faith-filled and, and involved actively. Uh, and at, I think at one point when, when we first met, um, I had lost a few people very, very close to me in my life, and I, I experienced that uh, moment when, with, that some of us, probably experience where I was I was angry I was mad I was confused I questioned where God was in my life and and then she entered my life and so uh, I think that she uh, guided me initially in those early days of courtship and then eventually uh, marriage and uh, although as I started looking uh, before the diaconate as a matter of fact I I thought I'd be a lay person working full-time in the church so I did actually go through uh, seven years of formation through the lay ecclesial ministry program with the Archdiocese of Mundelein. Uh, and it was just before I finished that I, I discerned in diaconate. And I think it was a combination at the time. Graziano Marcheschi was the director of the lay program. And Bob Puhala had to get together and figure out what to do with me. Uh, and so, of course, I was still trying to figure out I what I was doing. He had to do that with all of us in formation. <laughs> but that's <a laughs> but I, I had this calling, I think, to more uh, a deeper, broader way of being involved uh, in bringing other of others, evangelizing others uh, with the faith, into the faith, to the faith. And so, uh, you know, as we say, God can sometimes have a, an interesting sense of humor. And so uh, it would th then be 11 years once I was ordained that I, I went through this process. So it wasn't, you know, initially it's four years with the diaconate. For me, part-time with the lay ecclesial ministry program was seven years. So it was a, a full 11. Uh, so, of course, my wife always knew where I was, uh, you know, in terms of not getting in trouble and things like that. But uh, so, I, you know, it, it, it's interesting. Father, Father Richard Lobianco, who was the, uh, the pastor at St. Gerald's when I first started the journey, uh, was uh, very uh, crucial, I think, in the initial dialogues. I also became very close with uh, Dr. Avis Clendenin, who was the head of the Pastoral Study Certificate Program Saint at Xavier. St. Xavier. Yep. And, which is right down the street from where I live. And, um, I'm a proud alumni right Yeah, here. You're and a proud alumnus. Singular. 
I was in the chemistry too- program, not an English program. No. So. <laughs> Lawyers are always about the words. Sorry to interrupt. No, Sorry, no, no. Lawyer. And then I was going to say. You can get to complaining about the vicar's office <laughs> later, but we, right now we can talk about. Uh, <laughs> and then I think the you know the diversity of the archdiocese and my my opportunity to also practice my faith in faith in the Eastern Rite uh, of the Catholic Church that's in union with with Rome was was very uh, crucial in my getting a broader picture not only of the different rights within the church but the universality of the church Um, I think being in Chicago has been a a blessing and uh, a very rich one in terms of the experiences I've been able to have so you're you're down in God's country the south side of Chicago Chicago in the uh, over by Wojo's and and all those good places (laughs) and at St. Xavier and right down the street from my house so uh, what what uh, what kind of activities are you in in the parish yeah, well, right now uh, I oversee the baptismal prep program, and so, of course, meet with the couples uh, every third Thursday of the month. Uh, my wife and I, uh, uh, as well as a team of uh, laymen and women, have been overseeing the uh, pre-cana program for about 15 years uh, now. And just before uh, being ordained, my wife and I were doing music ministry there, so I was a cantor for almost 20 years. And so I sing when the deacon is called to sing and to bring our congregation into congregational singing when I can, but I've kind of moved away a little bit from that, that part of my life. Um, so those are some of the key. Ministry of care, we started a bereavement ministry program as part of a team. Uh, Debbie Janicki oversees that, doing a wonderful job at our parish now. Um, and then, of course, the role of the, de- the deacon at this point. Um, I help a little bit with RCIA. Um, our associate pastor, Father Mike Flynn, uh, will t- tag team with me, but I just come in uh, off the bench, if you will, uh, from time to time to assist with that program. And, and most importantly, which of those 62 shakes are your favorite at Wojo's? Oh, geez. It's not a regular. I tend to go to Rainbow Cone as much as I can. So. Okay, that's good. Okay. So. <laughs> so. And the White Sox, of course. White Sox fan? Yes. Okay. We're, we're yeah. going to break for a commercial now with... Uh, <laughs> They're a sponsor. They're a sponsor. Oh. <laughs> so one of the questions that uh, I have for you is that um, how did you get involved with Catholic Relief Services, especially considering that you've also only been ordained a couple of years? I mean, that's quite the transition. Yeah. Well, early on in the aspirancy year with the diaconate program, uh, we and they still this is still part of the formation program different organizations around chicago uh, will come in representatives to talk about what they do and what opportunities there are for deacons should you be ordained as we would hear throughout the program rightfully so uh, but opportunities to do uh, charity in that first year of aspirancy through that whole year that field experience and so father thomas uh, mcquade who's a local uh, uh, priest, and he's actually going to be finishing up his role. He's been with CRS for a, a, a while. Uh, he's going to be going back into parish ministry in June. Uh, I'm not sure where that assignment will be, but he had come in and talked about CRS. And so, you know, I made some notes and uh, kind of put that on the back burner with all the responsibilities and things we needed to do with the diac, and it was kind of hard to focus on that. But I think because I, I kind of look at my life in an integrated way, uh, you know, I work as a director of international services, students, uh, students and scholar services at Lewis uh, for almost 20 years in the field of international education. Combining that with a father who was a German and Latin teacher and uh, influenced, you know, me in terms of appreciating cultures and diversity, uh, it, there was, I think, a natural gravitational pull toward 
the global nature of our church and what what it's doing around the world to help those in need. And so, you know, I sought out uh, uh, CRS kind of on my own, and it was about a year process. Uh, you have to submit, you know, a detailed application, references, recommendations. You have to re have yourself recorded, uh, giving a homily, and and then eventually uh, the files or the applications are reviewed by the USCCB at their uh, national meeting in June. And then, you know, if you're fortunate enough to, to join as a global fellow, uh, then, you know, you, you start that path. And so uh, there's a very involved training process. They have a yearly uh, conference, if you will, in Baltimore where the headquarters are located. And that's really to break open uh, the Catholic social teaching uh understanding uh, how uh, CRS works with uh, and honors the, the, the teachings of the church and the fidelity to the, to the teachings of the church. Um, and there, there's also uh, training for not just us, but the 5,000 staff that exist around the world. Mine is a volunteer position, by the way. It's not a paid position. I do this because I feel that the Holy Spirit is calling me to this. And uh, th that is yet to be fully unfolding. As you mentioned, it's not been that long uh, since I've been involved uh, with them. And so um, I can talk a little bit more about the activities I've done since well, I started. Well, can we take a step back and um, for, the, uh, for those who don't know, Catholic Relief Services, what is it, uh, who's it belong to? Is, is it a freestanding charity? What, what, what is Catholic Relief Services? Well, I like to talk uh, holistically about uh, the church when we talk about the, the local and the global. So a lot of people will sometimes, some people get confused when, they, they think of Catholic Charities, which is really the domestic arm of the church throughout the United States, doing a lot of the same work that Catholic Relief Services does, which is the global arm of the United States Com Catholic Conference of Bishops in the United States. So it's, it is the, the social mission that is our faith lived in the world, helping those in need, working in over 100 countries, servicing over 130 million people. So it is an arm of our U.S. church around the world overseen by the, the Catholic Conference of Bishops. I, I don't know if you know, I'm, I don't want to put you here as the spokesperson for CRS, but this is, this is the, uh, the U.S. church's initiative. Are there opportunities that you're aware of, say the, the, the German bishops? Um, the German church is, is well-funded, as, as I, I hear through the, through the, uh, the annual assessments that the German taxpayers make. Uh, does CRS partner with, say, other national U.S., uh, other national Catholic churches around around the globe? Do you know if that? Well, in, in Europe, Caritas International okay. would be uh, the branch in that part of the world that will collaborate often with uh, CRS. Okay. And there are other, other uh, organizations that, depending on particular... Uh, ministries or grants that are provided might be connected with CRS. Uh, many of the projects around the world can't be managed just by CRS alone, uh, whether that's in, in people power or financially. So there, there is uh, a number of collaborative relationships that exist. So I guess the answer would be yes to okay, that question. Right, yes. yeah. And how is CRS funded? Well, the, although the majority, about 60% of the funding is through public funding, uh, the remainder would be private. And so um, the, the, the U.S. government would be a part of that pool uh, of monies that, that are, are provided for funding. 
the various projects around the world. Uh, I think CRS tries to strengthen its number of sponsors and private donors. Um, for example, right now, uh, you know, we're in the season of Lent, uh, so I've been actively involved in various parishes around the Archdiocese promoting CRS Rice Bowl. Uh, in which case those would be all private funds uh, throughout the United States. So that's, that's a, a big pool of money that actually goes to operations throughout the world. What kind of strings does the government try to, you, you hear about on the news and everything else, how does right. uh, CRS deal with some of the strings, abortion, contraception, everything else, that, that comes with government funding? Well, I mean, it's never been the policy of CRS to, you know, distribute or promote um, uh, artificial concept, uh, contraception, abort efficiency, or uh, to promote abortion itself. I think that what I hear from some critics who, you know, I don't think speak for the official church, um, a lot of monies have been left on the table, and I and I experienced this firsthand with some of the projects that that I observed and some of the what the beneficiaries they were receiving, because certain organizations were not holding true to the teachings of the church and the fidelity of the church. So I, um, there is a, uh, there are many cooperative agreements that are established contractually that basically lay out exactly what projects are being done and how they're being done and where they may stop in terms of CRS's involvement, for example. Um, I think the limitations to uh, in honoring the, the uh, identity of the church around the world um, is, is honorable and is being held uh, in truth by CRS and that um, it's unfortunate that you know, there might be some organizations that are, are taking certain things beyond what we believe to be the truth and be, uh, you know, what what should be done in terms of certain projects, but, um, you know, CRS is overseen by a board of directors, 13 of which are, are U.S. bishops or archbishops, and so, you know, in consultation uh, with the National Bioethics Committee, the USCCB's Pro-Life Committee, uh, moral theologian, theologians, and other faithful laymen and women, um, there is no project that I'm aware of um, that would ever go beyond the the official teachings of the church and what we believe is as Catholics. You know if that I, answered your question. I wonder if people are are familiar with the you know you, we talk about government government funding or government money, and correct me anybody here at the table if if my understanding is awry, but it's my impression that the government uh, sees a need say overseas we need to uh, the US government sees it in its best interest or in the interest of the American people to offer some sort of relief to say the refugee camp in in Uganda so the US government says we need to spend 50 million dollars to do this who is going to be our agent on the ground to to utilize that 50 million dollars to to deliver the relief and so um, it sounds like these huge piles of money coming in, in somebody's direction, but it, it's money that's, that's earmarked for a particular project, and CRS is there to, to implement that, and probably in a more cost-effective way than most anybody else can do. Correct. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's, the, that's the story of Catholic Charities in the United States, is that you know, who's, who's going to do these things as cheaply and efficiently as they do um, you know, with the various programs that they do? So it's... It's that mix of private and, and public dollars. Is that any dissenters here at the table? No. Okay. 
So uh, another question for you that you had mentioned earlier that you were a global fellow for CRS. What does that entail and what type of commitment is that? Right. Well, right now, um, CRS is reconfiguring its, its strategy, what they're calling Strategy 2030. Um, there's probably more to that, but basically they're re-envisioning how to enliven and evangelize the Catholic community in the United States to better understand the social mission of the church and how they can be involved um, as laymen and women. As a global fellow, uh, this is an opportunity for priests and deacons specifically uh, to uh, preach from the pulpit uh, at least three times a year in their own diocese or archdiocese. And then, depending on your experience, uh, skill sets, uh, opportunities to, for example, travel and maybe see what's happening on the ground, um, that you might be sent uh, domestically to different dioceses uh, or archdioceses to meet with uh, formation groups. That could be priests at seminary seminaries or uh, uh, permanent deacon programs, which is what I did in the Belleville Cape Girardeau uh, diocese a year in after I joined. I went and gave two two-hour presentations out of the gate. Um, but the commitment really is, it's really based on your your time, uh, how you're balancing all the other responsibilities you might have in your life. Um, you know, recently, and we'll probably get into this, I, I was sent to Uganda uh, East Africa to the Pearl of Africa as it's referred to to basically go and see on the ground what exactly is taking place uh, how people are receiving support where the where money goes that people are donating uh, to bring these stories of hope and joy back so that people can understand uh, how the social mission of, of the church is being lived uh, and of course, that was a, a very transformative experience for me. But so I, I t you know, to wrap that the answer up to your question, um, I think it, it depends on uh, an awareness. I think it's very crucial to say this of what the commitment is up front. Um, I think that there have been some uh, gentlemen who have been global fellows and name only and really haven't been out there pounding the pavement and. Uh, I think I think it takes a little bit of being your heart being enlivened to understand the value and the importance of this work and what the church uh, can do to build the kingdom of God on earth. Uh, but um, it also takes you know awareness and training and a little bit of education. So for me, I think this is where the Holy Spirit is moving me, and it's still unfolding as we speak. Do you think this? I mean, could you give me examples in the organization? Do are people fellows for five years? I assume there's a range from right. So right, there are um, more than a several dozen active global fellows. The total, I'm not exactly sure, but it's probably like forty to fifty, maybe sixty at the most. Within that, there are what are called um, global fellow educators. So these would be, for example, there were two priests that uh, participated in the in the trip. Father uh, J C Aguere, uh, who is in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, in the diocese there, and uh, Father Vic Gallier, who is in Atlanta at the moment. And uh, they have been both with CRS for about 20 years. Okay. And so they're there to mentor us, for example, to be resources, uh, and to, to you know help us understand what that commitment can be. Um, what I haven't mentioned, too, is that there's an advocacy component, which is something that I need to strengthen, I would say, is a little bit of a weakness of mine that, uh, you know, we're called to, to help um, uh, 
educate uh, our politicians in terms of the, the value of resources that are needed to help the, the most needy in the world. Um, and so, again, you know, the commitment, I, I think you're, we're, we're being tasked to, to, to really do what we say we want to do, not just say what we believe, but actually go out there and, and put the work in. So since I've gotten back from my trip, uh, I, I have, it's been nonstop. Uh, every week, every weekend. Um, a little exhausting, but I wouldn't have it any other way. It's been some of the best months of my life. So 60 fellows, is, they, is that where they Roughly. want to be, or is they wanted to grow? Is that too many? Where, That's where, a good question, and, and I can be very specific with that. Uh, they're, hold, they're putting on hold uh, recruitment initiatives, if you will. Now, if somebody reaches out and expresses interest and has a background and a passion, of course, no one's going to be turned away, but they want to reconfigure in, in uh, reassess uh, how the training is done um, and to make sure that people understand what the commitment is about. For example, the trip that we took wasn't a vacation. And I think that uh, over the years, there's been about 40 delegations total. You know, the, the, uh, the organization is 75 years old, uh, going into its 76th year. Um, but some people had dropped out of, of before going on the trip because they didn't realize the the difficulty, the physical difficulty, the mental difficulty of going on a trip like this. And I have to say that it was probably one of the toughest, but but more most beautiful experiences of my life um, that I'm still unpacking. And and we will get into your trip in great detail in in a couple after our break here. But we have a uh, few few minutes left before our break. Do you anyone have a question there, Mike or? Just generically, or, or more more broadly, before I'm hoping when we come back we can we can talk about that trip that you did. But where else other than Uganda is uh, is CRS working? Well, I'd mentioned earlier. I mean, there are actually over a hundred countries that they're in. Um, I think some people will stereotype and just assume that Africa is kind of the bread and butter of most of the activity, and to some ex extent, because of the unstable socioeconomical situation there. Um, that will be the case. But with the uh, typhoon, Ida, that just hit, um, you know, th there's a lot of activity. Eastern Europe? Um, in um, uh, Africa, okay. in, in Southern Africa. But also in Eastern Europe? Yes, and they're all over. Yeah. Latin America, Eastern Europe, okay. less so in Europe itself. Asia, Philippines? Yes. yes. All right, well, we're coming up on a break here on WSFI FM 88. Point five on your FM dial and also on the internet, WSFICatholicRadio.org. We will be right back from the Deacon's Roundtable in just a few minutes. It's true. And did you know that locally about 300 children were aborted in one year alone? You can do something about it through 40 Days for Life. In 40 Days for Life prayer vigils, more than 15,000 babies have been saved. To see how you can take part in prayer and fasting for an end to abortion, 40 Days for Life is happening in Kenosha on March 6th, Ash Wednesday, through April 14th. Please visit 40daysforlife.com slash Kenosha. That's 40daysforlife.com slash Kenosha. Hello, I'm Bill Wennington from the Church of St. Mary's and the Chicago Bulls. I, I believe Catholic Radio is important for all of us out there listening to help us through days when maybe our faith is being challenged by many different obstacles that are put in our way. And 
it's a chance to reflect and just think and hear stories from other people that maybe are going through the exact same issues that we are going through and how they have struggled and how they are getting through their problems today. WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio is committed to bringing quality Catholic programs to our local community. We only can do that with your financial support. Take a moment now to donate online at wsfiradio.org or mail your tax-deductible donation to WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, P.O. Box 885, Libertyville, Illinois 60048. That's WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, P.O. Box 885, Libertyville, Illinois 60048. Donations of any amount are greatly appreciated. And we're back on the Deacon's Roundtable on WSFI Catholic Radio. Thank you for joining us, and uh, please, as always, consider making a donation as a radio station that is, is, is publicly funded for what we're doing. We're talking with Deacon Mike from St. Gerald, talking about Catholic Lease Services. He's going to tell us about how you put him on an airplane, they gave him a parachute, and ju- made you jump out over Uganda, right? Is that how it worked? Right. <laughs> well... Uh, you know, for me, it, it was an opportunity. There isn't an assumption, but m- most people understand that at some point, if you're going to be actively involved with CRS, they'll send you overseas so that you can speak uh, power to truth in what is actually happening happening on the ground. And so the opportunity for me was to go to Uganda. And there's a lot of work that goes on, of course, as you can imagine, behind the scenes and on the ground in country. But for for those that are selected to go, and it's a small cohort, so there were uh, eight of us, um, uh, five uh, five priests and the rest were uh, or deacons and the rest were priests. Uh, There's a lot of preparation. So we had, you know, weekly conference calls for over a month, a lot of reading material uh, that we had to read, um, and a lot of preparation in terms of learning about the culture, the nuances, and you know the from the different languages to the political climate and so forth and and what's taking place on the ground uh the trip is sponsored by crs and so uh the 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 main cost for those that participate would be their immunizations or vaccinations which for me were around uh, about five hundred dollars uh but in most cases um depending on your your uh, medical plan most of that was covered by uh, by my, my medical plan, but you know, f- to me, that that's a nominal cost uh, for such a, a wonderful opportunity to uh, to go over. Um, so it is a commitment in terms of preparation, and you know, if some of us work, making arrangements for you know to t- to take time off and so forth. So how long? It was uh, just under two weeks. Two weeks. Uh, you know, if you include the the twenty four hours it took for me to get there, uh, with the layovers and so forth, um, it was. Uh, uh, an exhausting trip, to say the least. But were you nervous, scared? I mean, I grew up with the Idi Amin stories and everything yes, else. Yes, right. Stuff, so were you were you nervous about going over there? Well, I, I know that some people have probably heard the news of a of a tourist that uh, was was going over on a safari that it was abducted, and that that's a, an anomaly, something very very rare. Uh, we never felt uh, unsafe, and you know that would come up. I, we were all. Uh, told ahead of time that we would be staying uh, in places that were safe, that were clean. Um, and, you know, we had somebody on the ground that worked for CRS, that's uh, Uganda National, that was with us throughout, uh, multiple staff, uh, from the country director to the to the directors of the different programs that we were visiting. So that was never an issue, I think, at all. Um, things are still unstable in South Sudan, which is where a majority of the refugees are coming into the, the main refugee camp there that's called BDBD. Uh, the largest in the world at 230,000 people. 
Um, so that was, was something to experience. Is, 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 is Sudan the northern border of Uganda, or they have to? Yes, the northwest it? border. Okay. Yeah. So we were in a, uh, we flew from uh, Kampala uh, in a very small Cessna 850 airplane with our luggage in another plane because we couldn't be overweight. <laughs> uh, they asked us before we left what our weights were, and they said, we'll, t we'll explain why, but that won't, we won't tell anyone what you tell us. But it was mainly to, for safety purposes. But, um, you know, the one thing that was interesting when we landed, they, they did check us for, um, uh, you know, they checked our temperature uh, for, for different uh, uh, issues concerning any viruses that we might have if it was elevated. Um, but uh, even, in, even in the refugee camp, um, by the way, the majority of the refugees are Christian. And so uh, surrounded by a majority Muslim community. And it was very interesting to see the uh, interreligious, also the kind of, if you will, the ecumenical approach to the communities around there uh, and the peace initiatives that, that are, are taking place uh, prior to when we got there and, of course, continuing, uh, where I met Father David, uh, who has brought together the Muslim and the Christian community uh, to have interreligious dialogues, to uh, have activities that help each other learn about each other's faith traditions and also uh, community. Where was uh, Father David from? Well, you know, he, he's actually in from Uganda. So Uganda, he's, he's okay. a priest uh, of the diocese there in Kampala, as I understand it. So, uh, But it was wonderful to meet with him uh, before we entered the, the refugee camp. We were there for two days. Uh, meeting with d different beneficiaries with the projects that CRS is doing in, in that location, as well as other projects around the country. So what did you see in the refugee camp? Well, you know, it's hard, it's hard to put in the words I exactly, but I'll do my, my best. Um, you see a lot of, again, good works that are being done. Uh, one of the more powerful uh observations that, that we were provided uh, was what I would call an engineering miracle, uh, where they, there is a senior engineer who happens to be from the Philippines that works for CRS, and he tends to go to different projects throughout the world, but he's, he's in Uganda now for some time. But basically, they had tapped uh, water, uh, uh, a source for water, uh, in the middle of nowhere, and uh, and then basically they pipe this water about several miles away to tanks that are distributing clean water to over 24,000 beneficiaries. Uh, it's the water is is pumped by the use of a generator that is uh, powered by solar solar power. And so to see this feat, and this is one of three that CRS has overseen as as the main uh, project overseer. Uh, was something that uh, it's hard to again put into words because what you have in, for example you know with water being such a commodity you you would see these large trucks coming in and out of the refugee camp with water and what was happening is there were uh, shady characters that were basically selling water for different through different means to the refugees we take that you know the the use of water for granted and so m the way I look at water the way I use water has changed significantly because of that experience um, one of the other wonderful projects there is uh, what they call wash uh, it's a uh, water sanitation and hygiene program uh, because of the limited resources within the camp and as I said 230,000 people uh, CRS is, has an educational program that's helping people understand sanitation issues um, how to utilize water safely in terms of you know cleaning one's hand and, and bathing themselves and drinking and so forth um, 
we take those things for granted, but they don't have the resources at their disposal like we do in terms of going into a bathroom, uh, you know, washing their hands and taking a shower. So you can see, you know, uh, signage and so forth throughout the camp that's helping people understand what they need to do so that there's not issues of cholera and dysentery and, and other diseases that can decimate that entire refugee camp. Now, there's 250,000 people is, uh, would be the second largest city in the state of Illinois. And that's only 20% of the total refugee population in the entire country. I was wondering in terms of language, did, did, do they share one language or other dialects? Right, that's, an, that's a very good question. Well, the national language in Uganda is Lugandan, uh, but there are over 40 languages spoken throughout the country in terms of, and we're not, just, we're not even including the, the refugees. Many of the refugees speak uh, um, Arabic, South Sudanese Arabic, so it's a dialect of Arabic. Uh, many of the many of the Ugandan staff that work for CRS are multi or tri trilingual, and many have had to learn languages because of working in the camps. So we had multiple translators. But it's interesting the languages that the refugees themselves pick up from each other because they don't understand each other. So th there's a lot of um, education of each other, if you will. There, that's an interesting question and, and a very it's a big challenge. And on that, on that score, I'm thinking of with that mass of humanity, uh, there's the United Nations. I mean, who's, there's got to be security issues, and you just have that many people. Is there a, a police force, or uh, who's? Right. Well, the United Nations High Commission for Refugees is, is heavily involved okay. and, and has a very large presence there. And so uh, we were not made aware in, or that I observed in, in just from questions um, that, that violence was an issue. I think security in general. But just you, I get, think, you gather 250,000 people sure, do course. anything anywhere in the world. Right. and Right. Um, you know, what, what's interesting to, to that question is that it's almost like you had alluded to a city within, mm -hmm. uh, even though it's a refugee camp. Uh, and because it's an open border, and see if you, if you could follow me with this, uh, they have an open border policy there because over the years and I've asked I had asked Ugandans when I was there about the dynamic and the challenge for the host community that is housing the refugee camp out in this countryside and what the answer was this was us in the past and could be us in the future in terms of instability socioeconomic political instability and so many of the refugees still have businesses or what we you know many are farming farmers the many of them are farmers and they have so many watching their property and managing that even though it's too unsafe for them uh, as as Christians to go back in, and in so, the Sudan, in the Sudan. Right. Yeah. so for example I had met a 94 year old woman by the name of Rose who has been in the refugee camp for four, four different times in her life because it, 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 it's been there since the, since the uh, 60s there's, there's actually four, four zones in, in the camp and the first zone was started in in the 60s, um, but uh, th there's is you know uh, thievery probably issues with that, but mm. but no major violence. Yeah, I okay. think that everyone is in there for the same reasons. But that's that's a valid question for sure. Now, when you, when you say camp, I mean we have <coughs> hundreds of thousands of people there. If I were to drive up to it, would I see uh, like I'm 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 imagining a military base with tents, or I'm imagining a small right. town? What am I actually? seeing when I go to a camp. What right. is a camp? Well, that's a good question because th this was the first experience for me. 
and uh, I've seen refugee camps uh, in uh, the West Bank and Gaza Strip uh, that are, are more uh, solid structures, if you were, and much more condensed. This, this particular uh, area is more spread out. Uh, in what used to be a more green forest. But what's, what's happened over time is that the refugees are cutting down the trees to uh, create, you know, heat for heat, uh, for, you know, if you will, for, for they don't have electricity so that they can see. Um, they make uh, their small businesses where women are making uh, brooms and selling them. So you have these small little micro businesses or uh, uh, opportunities to, to make money within the camp. But it's... Um, I'm trying to think, and, and of course, anyone can Google this and see a picture of it, which would would uh, do a better service than me answering the question. But it's it's a very spread out forest kind of space that you would see. What was the name of this camp? BDBD, B-I-D-I, B-I-D-I, BDBD. And uh, what we saw were variations of housing. One of the things CRS has done, uh, and I'm proud to say, is you know they've created uh, at that point up to about 700 shelters that are basically more uh, solid structures with a more permanent roof that can help not only protect from uh, inclement weather, um, but offer more permanent space. You also see what we would call our huts that just have kind of grass, dried grass on top, which. Um, uh, it would be the typical thing you would see. Otherwise, UN, UNHCR, United, United Nations High Commission for Refugees, would initially just create tarps and put them over what, what you could call sticks. So you see a variation of all of this over the, all over the place. And the, and the challenge that I had, I think, uh, was, and, and we would break open or break down the day each night and reflect as a group. Uh, because of what we were experiencing and the, the emotional effect it had on all of us, uh, we, would, we would question what we felt was a Band-Aid approach to such a great need and problem in that country. Great work being done, but so much more that needs to be done. And so, uh, you know, we, we had refugees that would talk to us and be very open about the challenges that they have with their life, the, the sense of normalcy that they're looking for, uh, even though they're thankful for what they have. Um, you know, because this isn't meant to be permanent, but we need more structural change within the society there so that uh, not only Ugandans can help other Ugandans, but that the refugees can go home to where they're at. They don't want handouts. They want resources and in, in the things that we expect in our own lives in terms of uh, human dignity uh, and the right and responsibility for work and to raise our children uh, and to have stability in our lives, uh, you know, and whatever that is, um, with our, for, with and for our families. And they want to go back to their lives. They don't, they don't want to stay there. So that means they don't have any source of livelihood, basically. Well, as I alluded to earlier, the number of the refugees we did meet, uh, some of the, vo there is a vocational training program that CRS, uh, provides within the refugee camp, uh, that provides opportunities with, for example, carpentry, uh, they have a little carpentry business where uh, young men and women, or young men mainly and boys, uh, have some tools, and they're given micro loans to help kind of get them uh, on their feet. Um, we also traveled throughout the country. Uh, we weren't just in the, in, in the, the refugee camp. We were there for two days, but in other parts of the country, we observed different different projects. Uh, one was. Um, uh, a savings and investment loan program for young men and women. We met a, uh, a young girl by the name of Beatrice and another by the name of Grace. One's a seamstress and the other one is a hairdresser. And they're basically being given skill sets now that they're out of high school and the opportunity to go to college is really not there. 
uh, for many of them, you know, financially. Uh, so what CRS is doing is helping them create, uh, it's a vocational program to help them get on their feet and have, have a livelihood, uh, if you will. I also walked along uh, or amongst the, the coffee lands. And, uh, you know, the, the number one export of Uganda is coffee. And I will tell you that it's, it's excellent. I brought some, some back f with, with me. Uh, and so I met two widows. Did you, did you declare that? I watch a lot of these reality TV border crossings. So did you just check in with the, the uh, customs guy when you came in oh. over here with, with the coffee? Uh, no, I think I was allowed to oh, were you? Okay. bring okay. that back. Okay. But Good. you're not trying to get me in trouble, yes, are you? Yes, I am. Um, <laughs> So, you know, the, 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 there was an opportunity to meet uh, two widows that now found themselves with uh, the makings of a what was going to become a large coffee farm. And so what CRS has, has done is gone in and uh, worked with and helped create uh, a co-op so that small uh, farmers could gather together and have more power and more voice and to cut out kind of the, the middle person, um, which often is a security issue for, for many. You had these middle, middle men usually would come in and, and take m most of the profit. And for those that might be familiar with Fair Trade, which is a big program of, of CRS, um, these are the farmers that we talk about. Many, most people assume, you know, Latin America, you know, in, in terms of that. But, but Africa is a big coffee-producing region as well. So it was amazing to see and walk through and, and understand the challenges that these women and others have in the co-op with uh, climate change and issues that are affecting, as well as uh, infestation with pests, mm -hmm. uh, their, their crops. Because this is how they're making their livelihood, and this is how they're, they're providing income, getting income so that they can provide a future for their children and their family. Um, this is a two-season uh, country, right? You don't have the four seasons. Um, well, What's yes, I guess mainly dry and dry wet. And wet. <laughs> but I found, even though it's on the equator, that, the, the, that in certain parts of the country, uh, the, the climate can be relatively mild. So when I, for example, if, if this is part of why you're asking, there's a lot of intercrop yeah. uh, planting, mm -hmm. uh, some to protect lower crops from, you know, with the, with the trees of the of the, the coffee farm. Um, so there's a lot of creativity that it has to take place because sometimes water is in short supply as well. So one question for you, something that you found, especially within refugee camps, but also in the other ones, with a lot of these small businesses going on, they're so weather dependent. Yes. And so how do they deal with things like the monsoons and, and just changes in weather right now that right. are going on across the world? Well, you know, my experience is limited, of course, to this experience in Uganda with, with the farming community. Um, I, I haven't been aware that in the recent past and in, in their history that outside of the dry season, um, it's interesting, it's a very lush country. I, I was a little confused by this because depending on parts of the country, the, the weather isn't as severe. So, of course, other parts of the country are affected negatively. And so, um, you know, the, the vegetables, the fruits, um, the vegetation just driving, you know, hours to get to our location. I mean, it was some of the most breathtakingly beautiful uh, land that I've ever seen. Um, so that there was a kind of a, um, a discord between what I thought and what I was seeing. And so there is a lot of creativity, uh, but I think I think climate change is going to is going to continue to adversely affect many of these communities, and many of the small crop farmers, because uh, many I, I can't forget I can't remember the percentage right now, but many many people 
are coffee farmers. And so that is one of the one of the industries and one of the uh, services that CRS is providing is working with, and they have dedicated staff for those in those communities that do that for a living. So I think I think there's a lot to still be answered uh, about that. I'm not aware that they've had issues in terms of monsoons and rains like we have seen just recently uh, in Zimbabwe in uh, the surrounding countries there, which I think is is a valid question. Uh, but it hasn't hit Uganda in the same way. Okay. So what were some of the areas that CRS met resistance, or you met resistance on the trip? I mean, of course you're welcoming people, but there's going to be areas where the program is challenged. Did you, or did you run into areas of resistance, I should say? No, I mean, I guess, I mean, obviously the, the trip was, was organized in a way so that we would meet beneficiaries throughout. I think if, if, if there was any resistance, it was probably from those beneficiaries that still need so much help. And I think that, um, you know, I mentioned this earlier that to us it, it almost felt like a Band-Aid approach with some of the things that were, were, that were being done. Some of the projects that are, are grant-funded are limited in terms of its length. And so, you know, they, they start these projects, and they really need several years down the road to continue to develop. Uh, but if the funding isn't there, they may stop. So I think there's an issue where you may start to create stability in roots that are very positive in terms of changing civil society, that are transformative for, for hopefully generations to come. But the question is, how long can that be sustained? The idea is, and we, we talk about this, this uh, very Catholic understanding of uh, subsidiarity, that you know governments in country can only do so much, but the context within which people are working uh, they know best their their own context and what they need in their lives in terms of how to fix that and, and the resources they need. And so CRS is there really to provide initial resources so that the people there in country, whether it's Uganda or one of the other 100-plus countries they work in, do for themselves what they know they need for their lives uh, to create stability. I like that uh, comes across as a teach a man to fish mentality Correct. as opposed to just donating blindly. For, I mean, obviously you've got to... Until you're done being hungry, there's not much you can do, but that doesn't help you in the long run for doing that. So we're, we're talking in an area of Lake County, mostly a very affluent area. What can we be doing more? I mean, wh wh what can we be doing more to help CRS and agencies like that? Well, you know, as a volunteer, I, I think that uh, my, my heart has been touched uh, over, over time seeing those within my own community uh, who have multiple needs. And so, for example, I, I have constantly emphasized the, the local and the global. And so for me, I am going to continue to be more involved with Catholic Charities on the southwest side of Chicago uh, and, and potentially have an opportunity to, to be on their board and, and educate others about the needs within our own community in ways that we can help. And so I see the other flip of the coin, which is CRS. And so, you know, when I go and I speak at different parishes, I'm not there as a fundraiser. I don't ask for a second collection. I'm there to create, number one, awareness so that people can understand the wonderful work that our U.S. Catholic Church is doing around the world. And I think that message is so important for Catholics to understand. Let me, let me just interject. The, uh, the good people at Divine Providence Parish in Westchester last weekend had the pleasure and privilege of listening to uh, Deacon Mike Facchetti preach uh, at all three masses over the weekend and I was I was taken with 
uh, Mike, your, your approach, and I, I think it really connected with the people. Your message was one of joy and of hope, and people, you may justifiably be proud of, of the work that, that your Catholic Church through CRS is doing in these, um, these challenged places of the world. So it was, it was very, very upbeat, um, and it was also, and I, you know, I think we, we would be remiss if we concluded this conversation without focusing in on the faith dimension of, of what you're about and what CRS is about. But uh, in the preaching, it was, it was loud and clear that it was, it was uh, both uh, uplifting, it was also challenging in that, well, you know what? What do we need to do? What What is this good work that, that CRS is doing? And, and you're right; it wasn't it wasn't a money pitch, but um, I know that some was some was collected. But uh, you know, where's 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 the faith dimension in this? Well, I I think we we have to start with an understanding that we are all created in the image and likeness of God, and you know the Latin Imago Dei. Um, you know, I I think that uh, when we look at the different aspects and areas of Catholic social teaching, you know, we're talking about, you know, how do we see God in the poor and the vulnerable, that we're all called to family, community, and participation, Uh, and that, you know, there is a social dimension within the shrinking world that we are in, and that there, we have to ask ourselves as Catholics, who is our neighbor, and who are we called to love, who, who are we challenged to reach out to? Uh, not just those within our own parish. Uh, and, and as I said, started saying earlier, it's very important to realize not only the needs that we have within our parish, but the surrounding community, but also the fact that we are a global church, that our, our faith is universal, and that we're all called to meet people in need, whether near or far. And I think that, you know, there are ways that, of course, prayer is always powerful in so many different ways. But I think that, you know, my, my wish is that people can look at ways to put their faith in action. And so if, if we've done anything today, hopefully it's creating awareness of CRS as the arm of the U.S. Catholic Church globally. And that uh, due to the great works that, that many are doing within CRS as an organization, but those that are volunteers... Um, for those that decide that they want to uh, offer a few dollars, great. I, it's needed and always will be. The poor, is, as we know, will always be with us. Um, but I'm enlivened and, and very hopeful uh, for the future, even though the, the world is a very challenging place. For those that I have met along my journey in, in the different uh, parishes and opportunities I've had to preach that uh, are going to continue to, to uh, challenge themselves to understand who their neighbor is, both locally and globally. And the website for Catholic Relief Services? CRS.org. CRS.org. Well, we've had the pleasure of being with Deacon Mike from Catholic uh, Relief Services here. Uh, thank you for your ministry. Thank you for your ministry in Chicago. Thank you for your ministry throughout the world. You are a beacon of hope and service to all of us. We, we appreciate it. Would you like to end us on our prayer today? Heavenly Father, gracious Lord, through the Holy Spirit, watch over us, guide us, and, and the celebration of the Paschal Mystery and the death and rising of our Lord Jesus Christ. May those who are questioning their faith, those that are wondering what they can do, uh, get out there, put your faith in action, and allow Jesus to guide you 
Amen. 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 This is WSFI 88.5 FM on your FM dial, Deacon's Roundtable. We'll see you next, talk to you next month. Thank you.